We've had the opportunity to interview many so-called experts on the topic of gender in the workplace. When we talked with them about a potential podcast episode, many were uncomfortable with questions that some people have but worry about asking. But Sam Postian Underdahl is not one of them. She's the Mary Tilly Bessemer Associate Professor of Business Administration in the Department of Management at Florida State University's College of Business. And we were honored to have her join us for a fantastic conversation about women, work, and why this topic matters. Sam's research, which we discuss along with other related topics, focuses on gender and diversity in organizations, the work-family interface, and leadership in the context of work and organizations. We explored the idea of the playing field of the workplace, how gender fits into it, and implications for all of us, including leaders and organizations. Stay tuned for this wonderful conversation with Sam Possian Underdahl. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Sam, welcome to the Indigo Podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. It's so great to have you here. I've been wanting to have you on this podcast for quite a while, and it's great we could make this happen. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to talk about the playing field of the workplace. Why does this playing field matter? And how might gender fit into it? And of course, at the end, we'll talk about implications for leaders, people, and organizations. That's right. And I thought maybe... Just to start off, we could have Sam tell us a little bit about yourself, your research interests, and maybe why those research areas are of interest to you. Uh, what made them interesting to you? Why are, why are we talking about what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, so um, I guess growing up, and I think most of us have this experience with boys and girls, it's, it seemed like to me in grade school, the girls were just killing it, like doing really well in school, winning awards, winning the spelling bee, you know, things like that. And so then I got to college at the University of Georgia and I majored in psychology, but I took one women's studies class just for fun and heard all these statistics showing like, actually women aren't doing that well when it comes to career outcomes and workplace. And so there's a gender pay gap. And if you look at leadership positions, women just really aren't making it to the top of organizations. And I had literally never heard any of that before that point, like never. Uh, You know, I thought, you know, Mad Men, 1960s, there was some gender discrimination, but by the 2000s, I thought for sure that was over with. Um, so this was, it was pretty shocking to me um, as an undergraduate to see these statistics. Like I had no idea this was happening. Um, so I just became super interested in understanding why we see such differences across men and women's career experiences and career outcomes. Um, so I became a research assistant and just kind of fell in love with this field of study because it is really complicated and there are lots of things to look at to understand these different outcomes. Um, So I ended up getting a PhD and most of my research is on this topic. I also look at some other areas, um, more generally like management effectiveness and stuff like that. But yeah, so that's a little bit about how I got here and um, 
you know, why I think this is an interesting topic to study. I knew Sam was going to be a great guest because I said, hey, I want a chance to ask all the crazy questions I get from people that aren't academics, right? They probably got an MBA. They work for a manufacturing company selling, I don't know, chicken processing equipment or something. And they haven't had a chance to get exposed to somebody who's really wicked smart, talk about this in a real meaningful way. So I I just can't wait to get into this. So Sam, we talk about the playing field of the workplace. What do you mean playing field? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think we all use sports metaphors for a lot of stuff. Um, and so business and careers uh, is, is no exception. So if you think about the playing field, um, if we were playing, let's say football or soccer on a hill and the teams did not switch sides at halftime, then that would be unfair for one of the teams, right? One team is having to run uphill the entire time, whereas the other team gets to run downhill. It's much easier for them. So if we think about the state of business and careers and gender, um, because there is this history where men were in the workplace more than women uh, decades ago, um, it has led to an uneven playing field uh, when it comes to success in, in the business arena, because we have a lot of biases and stereotypes that are still really harmful for women. And you would think that, you know, I, I play a clip from Mad Men um, for my students because <laughs> our students now aren't really aware of how strong these biases were and how they, I mean, pretty blatantly affected how men and women were treated in the workplace in the 50s and 60s. So I won't talk about it too much here, but anyone who's interested, you can um, find some YouTube clips from Mad Men. It gives you a pretty good picture of what it used to be like. But it was really pretty rough for women in the workplace back then. Much better today, um, but these biases really linger. And so these stereotypes that we have where we tend to associate men with leadership more so than women with leadership. So you guys have probably heard think manager, think male, this kind of automatic implicit association um, that most people have. If you you are told to close your eyes and picture um, a successful leader, most of us picture like an older white guy. It's just this automatic assumption or implicit bias that most of us have. And so that's just one example of how these these stereotypes still... um, are in our brains and and really color how we judge others, what we remember from a conversation, and who we're more comfortable with. Um, and so that impacts this, this idea of the playing field. So that this old boys network, common term, old boys club, um, you know, the upper echelons of companies today are still male dominated. And so there's lots of consequences that might make it easier for men to succeed in those environments and might make it a little more challenging for women to succeed. What I find really interesting and I guess in a way vexing about this entire issue is is really how complicated it is because certainly there are persistent ideas and stereotypes and biases that are unhelpful to various groups uh, when it comes to careers and opportunities and so forth. And at the same time, I wonder what I wonder what success looks like if we were to 
actually have a level playing field or whatever that means. Because many times I hear the arguments or I hear people say things like, you know, X percentage of CEOs are white men, ergo big problem, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know. I don't think that paints the entire picture. I wonder, I guess I, what, what, I, what I find myself wondering is how much of that is due, and I think this would be tricky to measure for sure, but how much of that is due to straight up discrimination? And you mentioned in the beginning how complicated this whole thing is. How much of that is like straight up discrimination and people being uh, excluded from conversations and opportunities versus other factors that perhaps are less nefarious and have to do with other other elements of of how people and how we as a society have arranged ourselves. Yeah, for sure. And that's why this is so fascinating to think about because it is super complicated. Um, so just think about, you know, we tend to raise our kids um, very differently if they're boys and girls. And there's lots of other societal and cultural um, norms that can influence what people are interested in pursuing. So the types of jobs that people might want to pursue. Um, not everyone wants to be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And there are a variety of reasons as to why some people might be more interested in that career goal than others. Um, that's more of a sociological question, a little bit outside of my area of expertise. But yeah, as you said, super complicated. It's not all about being... Um, you know, treated differently in the workplace. That's certainly part of it, right? But there's lots of other things that can affect that. The society you're in, the culture, um, your passions, where those passions might come from. And so I do think it's important to think about, you know, men, especially younger men, they really want to be heavily involved in family care, um, more so than past generations of men, older generations of men. This is kind of a generational difference we're seeing. And so I think it's really important um, as to what success would look like if we were to even the playing field is that everyone, regardless of your background or your gender, whatever category you want to think about, um, that you can pursue what you want to pursue without major social consequences and economic consequences. Well, let me ask you this. Would you agree with this? Most people learn how to be in the world heuristically, right? Monkey see, monkey do through high school, probably got their MBA. So they get there and they're like, you know what? I need to bring home the bacon to my wife and kids. Why should I care about Nancy over here? I mean, she never did anything to me, but like, uh, why should I care? Yeah. So I guess it depends on if this person wants to be successful in their careers. Is that an assumption? of this person <laughs> let's assume so well, i mean it depends right if you if you want to compete right you know like maybe you already have your good old boys club and why would it make sense for somebody who's benefiting from that structure to let kate and nancy in yeah so there's some really cool research by Catherine phillips and colleagues that shows that our brains actually work harder when we are interacting with people who are different than us so wanting to be in a room of people who are different from you when you're making important business decisions um, 
can actually help you think harder, come up with better solutions, be more innovative and creative in the decisions that you make and, and the solutions that you come up with. So if you're just, you know, a regular guy doing well, um, you can do better by including women in that meeting. Like it will actually force you to come up with better thoughts and decisions, which should help you in your career. You know, another thing that I think is interesting to think about is whether or not this whole idea of the, the playing field and and it's essentially we could go on a whole nother conversation about the the utility and pitfalls of these different metaphors that we use, be they sports metaphors, be they war metaphors. But um, I wonder about whether or not it matters if we see this as a zero sum game or not, because, um, you know, if I'm that guy who is is maybe super competitive in my career and somebody's telling me that I need to do these different things, perhaps to be a better ally to my female colleagues or, or other types of items like that. Um, you know, if I, if I see it as a zero sum game, then, and I'm super competitive, then perhaps I will be less incentivized to actually do those types of things. So I guess I, I wonder, you know, are these types of things, is it a zero sum game or not? Or is that, is that the right way we should be even looking at careers? I'm, I think that's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. I mean, a slightly different way of thinking about it is I think most people in this kind of traditional business context, you want to make it to the top. You want to become the boss of the boss eventually. Like everyone wants to be promoted. Not everyone, obviously, but I think that's kind of the way many people play the game if we're going to continue this metaphor. Um, and so think about who you're competing with. And typically, the best managers are getting promoted. And so those people have figured out how to lead the most successful team. How do you motivate your employees regardless of their background or their social group? How do you get your team members to work together effectively so that you can produce outcomes that are important to the company? Um, and so if you're not figuring that out, even as a lower level employee, you're probably not going to really make it that far. So I think it's important to think about kind of the team context and how to lead teams effectively. And part of that is this gender issue. Right. So if you're a leader who can only lead clones of yourself, <laughs> then you probably have a much more of a limited toolbox of leadership skills than if you can lead a variety of different types of people across a, a host of different types of differences. And, you know, I think some of when you move towards the top of an organization, that weakness could manifest itself even more greatly, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I we're talking about stuff I see in the workplace that is sexist as all get out. But we're we're airing it here. We went there so you don't have to worry about your career. Hey, I'm I'm equal to all women, just like men. I'm competing and it'll stab anybody in the back equally. Or, hey, you know, if, you know, a woman was in charge and I needed to suck up to them to get to that next level, I would. But since women aren't tend to not be in positions of leadership, I'm just not interested in the lower ranking women. <laughs> what What would you say to some of that? Well, I'd say the labor force is made up of about 50% women. And if you look at management and professional roles, it's closer to 55% women. So most early lower level managers, maybe even mid-level managers are women. Um, 
So I think it's important to, <laughs> to know how to work effectively with whoever your manager might be or whoever your colleagues might be, especially now that teams are going more global. Um, teams are doing hybrid work, virtual work. You might be working with people across three different continents. So uh, just kind of effective teamwork skills in general is going to be important for success. I've heard guys say, watch out for that one. He doesn't work well with women to where that's a negative thing because you don't want to be the manager that puts a guy that can't work well with women in a position. So I just want to say that stinking thinking, basically. I know women that'll talk about that guy's a total jerk. Your reputation will precede you. And man, 55% of women are in manager roles. Yeah, so professional and management. Okay. So this is according to BLS. So I'm not sure exactly what is counted. You're, you're close, Chris. I think what she was saying is that in professional managerial roles, 55% of them are women, right? So um, similar. But yeah. the, uh, you know, which brings up an interesting point because um, if that, you know, if that's, that's true, right? If it's around 55% of folks in those early to mid career professional managerial positions happen to be female, then, um, then if we look towards upper levels, then that starts to move in a direction where it's just much more male, male dominated. I think that's a, a general mm -hmm. fact. Um, is yep. it just a matter of time before that catches up or is it, does it have to do with, uh, other factors? And you actually bring this up in some of your research around this idea of opting out or being pushed out of a certain career trajectory for women. Because one thing we haven't brought up here, which I think is absolutely an important factor, is if you are a woman and you want to have children, that happens around similar times to critical times in your career, right? It just, that's biologically, uh, that's how we are, right? Um, mm -hmm. So we can't wait until you're 70 to have children. And so uh, tell us a little bit more about this idea of opting out being pushed out and maybe some of what you found in your research. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a very common explanation, and I hear this a lot from my MBA students, um, for why so few women make it to the top is that they choose not to. Um, that, you know, women choose to prioritize family um, over their careers, that, you know, the work-family conflict can be a lot higher for women. And so they choose to not pursue those really demanding, you know, upper-level positions. And so there's some really interesting work um, that was just published a couple years ago by Padovic um, and, and her colleagues in Administrative Science Quarterly, um, where they actually looked at this, um, this issue of you know, are women pursuing family pursuits more than men? Do they have more work-family conflict? And so they, they actually find that men also have a lot of work-family conflict. So Ben, you probably know this. A lot of research shows there's not really a gender difference in work-family conflict. Um, but it does impact women's advancement opportunities more than it affects men's advancement opportunities. So there's this um, phrase that became popular a decade or two ago um, called the motherhood penalty, the fatherhood premium. And so because we do have this stereotype that men are going to be the breadwinners, particularly as they become fathers, um, this is an, another one of those biases that really colors how we view uh, men and women, especially mothers and fathers in the workplace. So we tend to expect 
that when men become fathers, they're really going to lean into their careers, be fully committed, and um, you know, be that ideal worker who works long hours and really is dedicated to the company. And um, we kind of have the opposite expectation when it comes to mothers. When when women have children, we tend to expect that they're going to take on more of the family role and lean back from their careers. And so because of that kind of assumption or bias, um, it, it actually affects how managers and leaders treat uh, par- new parents in the workplace. Um, so we did a study to look at um, changes in perceived career encouragement that happen throughout the pregnancy for both men and women who are expecting a child. So the extent to which they feel that their company is really encouraging them to succeed in their career, you know, giving them cool projects, um, you know, giving them mentors in the workplace, things like that. So career encouragement. We also looked at changes in career motivation. So which kind of gets at this idea of opting out. So are women throughout pregnancy becoming less career motivated compared to men? Are men becoming more career motivated, which would kind of fit with this um, premium and penalty um, that I just talked about? So we actually find that... um, for women, they actually experience a decrease in career encouragement throughout the pregnancy, which fits with this idea of the motherhood penalty. So managers, whether they're aware of it or not, kind of expect women to lean back and they actually are less encouraging to those women throughout pregnancy. And they provide uh, or men who are expecting a child in this study, they experienced more career encouragement throughout the pregnancy from their workplace. Looking at career motivation, it actually went up for both men and women. And so, you know, this was a a pretty highly educated sample, you know, college degrees or higher working in, you know, corporate types of jobs. But we found that even um, the men and the women expecting a child both became more career motivated throughout that pregnancy. Um, Now, what's really interesting, and this is thinking about the importance of this for organizations, is that when those women experienced decreased career encouragement, they actually did not return to that company. They went to a more family-friendly company after maternity leave. So companies that, you know, are seen as kind of pushing women out um, when they have these family obligations, it's actually impacting their bottom line because turnover is so expensive. So they're losing quality employees to their competitors and then having to have the cost of replacing those people. I I think that's interesting because there's an HR question during an interview. You're not a lot like, hey, are you going to start a family? Are you married? Like these are questions that HR departments, when they hear that managers are asking those type of questions, cringe. Because in a lot of states, I think they've been, are they federally illegal? Yeah, you can't ask that kind of stuff. Yeah, (laughs) but but it happens because of this bias. But what's interesting to me is what you're saying is, and I remember when I found I was pregnant, I was pregnant, we were pregnant, my wife and I, um, that I I got really motivated. I started to feel like, oh my gosh, I need to, what else can I do to provide more security? And to know that like women are also experiencing in that. It's not just decorating a nursery room. It's actually getting motivated in their career. And yet here we have people asking these horribly biased questions and they're going to leave and go somewhere else. And it's not that they're leaving the workforce, correct? Correct. They're just going to find a company. So the standard for every company needs to be pro-family. Yeah. And it's really, it's really important 
I think that companies are family supportive for men and women. Because if this is just a women's issue, that women need good maternity leave benefits or that women need support as they're expecting a child, um, then that's going to just increase the inequality and, and these kind of negative biases that we have. Um, so yeah, I mean, Sweden has a fantastic paternity leave that's actually use it or lose it. And so their men there actually use parental leave. Um, it's one of the few countries where the men actually use a really good portion of the parental leave and they actually have almost no gender pay gap. Like they're, they're one of the most, if not the most gender egalitarian countries in the world. Um, so I think it's really important to focus on support for men and women, um, throughout pregnancies and, and after. Yeah. You know, one thing that comes to mind. Um, so first of all, you did say that this sample was, you know, probably, probably skewed towards the highly motivated, highly educated types of folks. And I think that brings to my mind the question of what is career success anyway? And is it a, is it a goal? Do we want to make sure that nobody opts out or do we just want to make sure that that's something that someone is actively choosing and not getting pushed out? Um, so those are some questions that come to my mind. And I, I wonder, uh, you know, do you know of any data around like different definitions of career success or or kind of how people think about that? Because I think that that probably matters here. And at least just from my personal perspective, I you know, I, I'm fine with people define, defining career success however they want. And mm-hmm. my personal point of view in terms, as I look at society and humanity in general, is that um, being a parent, raising your children with due attention and love is something that is incredibly important and matters far more than your an individual career in in, terms, in the grand scheme of things. Um, and so, oh, there's just some things I'm, I think about when I think about these types of issues as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I, I don't do a lot of work on career success. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a field in and of itself. But I do know that there's typically kind of two sets of definitions. There's objective career success, which is things like salary and promotion rates, and then subjective career success, which is how you feel. Right. <laughs> so are you happy? Do you feel fulfilled? Do you feel like you're doing meaningful work or that you've done meaningful work? Um, so both of those things are important. And, and I think that gets back to this idea of what does uh, an even playing field look like? And to me, that is that that men and women can both pursue the interests that are important to them without penalty. Because right now, I think a lot of men worry about social penalties for taking time off of work to care for their children. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we do have these different expectations for how men and women should behave. And so you know, I don't think we'll have gender equity until men can be stay-at-home dads without facing any penalties. Mm -hmm. This is interesting to me. So as a researcher, let's pretend, let's pretend you're in a time capsule and you go a thousand years into the future or something. And you're coming out of your psychology undergrad and you're like, huh, I'm interested in this. And you go into the literature, what would you what would you see if you're like, hey, look, they solved it? You know, like what what kind of stuff would what would be those indicators that the world's kind of where it needs to be and maybe we can stop messing with it a little bit? In a thousand years from now. I mean, I'm a pessimist, sorry. 
maybe 10 years. A thousand years from now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure humans will still be around. (laughs) You heard it here. (laughs) The world will be covered with robots at that point. You heard it here first. The robots Um, are coming. But you know what I'm saying? How how do we know that this is solved? Or what, what are some of the things that we would start to look for if you wanted to be an evidence space thinker in this space? I mean, there's so many metrics and data points that you could look at. You could look at, you know, are there huge gaps in who's pursuing different types of jobs? You know, right now there are a lot of female-dominated jobs, teachers, nurses, and there are really male-dominated jobs too, Um, you know, engineers and um, astrophysicists, (laughs) as an example. Um, So, you know, I I think how we're educating our children um, might be a lot more egalitarian and what we kind of encourage boys and girls to do. There won't be as many differences um, in some of those pursuits and and different um, college majors, if college is still a thing that far into the future. Um, And then, you know, are people happy in their lives? Are they doing the things that they want to do? Or do they feel like they're having to pursue certain things um, that maybe they're not as interested in pursuing for a variety of reasons? So family outcomes, career outcomes, salary, promotions, career interests, I don't know, there's a whole bunch of things that could be examined. But um, one kind of simple thing that we've been tracking for a long time is the gender pay gap. Um, which is still around, even when you control for the fact that men and women pursue different types of jobs and, um, women are more educated than men right now, which, you know, I think if we want an equitable world that should be on par, uh, where men and women are, are achieving similar educational outcomes. Um, so yeah, I think it's a very big question. And there are lots of different things to look at. What what do you guys think would be important? I, I don't know. I just see HR says if we've got twenty percent African Americans in this town and we don't have at least twenty percent of our workforce there, we're failing. You know, they tend to go by account. You know, I've seen all kinds of different metrics, but when I look at them, it just doesn't make broad sense. Now, I liked how you said that happiness metric, like if you could somehow survey the entire workforce population or work eligible people and say, you know, do you feel you have that there are no barriers to the type of employment you would like? That would be pretty interesting. But that would be no one organization could keep that kind of data. So I just wonder if you're an organization or a researcher, how I don't even know how you get your arms around that bear. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure in terms of, I think, I think you did a good job answering that question, Sam. I think it's hard to say what, what would be the number we're looking for, for, you know, things to be ideal. Um, And that's difficult across a whole range of different types of issues. You know, even things like, okay, we have male dominated occupations versus female dominated ones like i i don't even really know how to answer the question like is that a problem with certain industries i i don't know like do we do we have to have 50 50 you know gender equity in terms of who's in who's going into nursing versus astrophysics and so forth it doesn't it's not obvious to me that we we do need to have 50 50 i think what's also interesting and perhaps really problematic 
is, as you alluded to, you know, we probably need to focus on on men as well, and especially in terms of education. Um, there is, as the Chronicle of Higher Education says, a male enrollment crisis. Uh, and that, and uh, you know, you're a, you're a professor, I'm a professor. Uh, we see it in our classrooms. Um, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot that we need to do to help men educationally. And then perhaps when it comes to careers, make things more equitable across the board. That's my large generalizable answer to that big question. Yeah. I just want to throw out how fraught this space is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I want to interject that this is really fraught. I feel like, especially in some of my friends' organizations that are like in the Northeast and stuff, organizations that most of those people would know what the word woke really means, not just what somebody said it means on Twitter. And they are mobbing organizations over equity, which is great. I prefer people care about equity. But if you and I kidnapped some CEO or CHROs, threw them in a truck and take them to a burnout warehouse and say, all right, we need equity. And they said, listen, we'll do whatever you want us to do as long as it's evidence-based. Even with a team of experts as smart as Ben and Sam are, you know, these guys are like the big machetes. I'm a little sandpaper over here. But (laughs) it's hard to know what we're trying to drive at. And so these organizations in defense will throw up baloney metrics to try to show some kind of progress, or they'll hire some outside person and pay them a lot of money to come up with some dashboard and then a project plan to show progress. But progress, we're still discovering what the definition of success looks like. And it's hard to launch a project when you don't know what done looks, what done looks like. Now, you can have some directional issues and kind of stuff. So I just wanted to throw out that caveat for the people that are are taking organizations that are doing good things, right, with good people and don't have a burning heart of evil in them, that it's just hard. I mean, Sam, would you agree? It's just kind of hard to know exactly what to do. Mm. Yeah, it's super complicated. Um, There is a lot of research on it, which I think can be helpful for organizations that are looking for directions to head in. Um, I know, you know, there's lots of metrics, as we've mentioned, and that can complicate things, but it can also help clarify things. And so um, some research has shown that, you know, in women, because there's kind of this double standard of competence that as you move up in an organization, there are fewer women. And so the ones who make it to the top are exceptionally competent because they have had to overcome all these barriers and challenges that a lot of their male colleagues have not had to face. But there's actually research showing that for women to get promoted at the same rate as men, they actually have to be even better performers. So if you look at like performance evaluations and metrics around, you know, even objective outcomes, sales numbers and things like that, um, women are really having to do amazing things to be promoted at the same rate as men. And so there's things like that that you can look at. Like it's not just straight numbers of looking at how many people make it. It's like, but what did it take to get there? Are some people having to work extra hard to get the same outcomes as others? It speaks to this kind of unfairness that I know you guys have talked about on a previous podcast that you did. Justice and fairness is so important. 
You know, one thing you mentioned there, Sam, brings to mind at least some research that is crossing my my uh, brain at the moment. Um, you can check me if this is correct or not, but it's I, I believe that, that it's relatively evidence based um, to say that oftentimes women are women and men, even if they're rated the same on performance, oftentimes women get rated lower on potential. Right. Which is kind of drives this issue with promotability and so forth. So, I mean, we could say mm-hmm. so we, we were just saying how complicated this is, how yep. we need to, you know, it, it, if we took the Bill Gates out to a burned out warehouse, as Chris said, we wouldn't be able to give him anything evidence based. But I think we could say, look, man, make sure that you are being fair in rating not only performance, but also rating potential across all people, yeah, right? There's definitely. one. Another one comes directly from your research, which is uh, perceived career encouragement. How I mean, that's something that you could directly infuse into how you talk about leadership, how you do your leader development, talking about being a supportive supervisor and what that means, and making sure that um, people at least know or have the tools available to um, provide equitable pers- you know, career encouragement, right? For sure. Yeah, I think there's lots of things that organizations can do. Um, Some other research shows that we use different language to describe men and women in our recommendation letters and in our performance feedback. Mm. So oftentimes, you know, you might get a one to five rating on your annual performance review, but sometimes that's accompanied with kind of open-ended comments or developmental feedback. And so researchers have coded that and found that the language used both in the the open-ended comments for development and in um, recommendation letters is often uh, in line with traditional stereotypes. So men are more often described as like brilliant and great leaders. Um, Women tend to be described as more like team oriented um, and and empathetic with others. And even if you take a resume, and so you might say, well, maybe men and women are actually different in some ways, and, and that could impact the language we use to describe them, which could definitely be true. But other studies have taken a resume that's identical, and it either has Jennifer at the top or John, and then they're like, we need you to write a recommendation letter for this person. So everything's exactly the same. Even then the language is quite different, um, Mm. just based on Jennifer or John. So I think, you know, asking managers to kind of check themselves, um, blind resumes make a huge difference. And so there's this famous example, because I think these people don't realize how much these biases really affect, like how we see the world and even how we hear the world. And so a famous example is the U.S. orchestras. Back in the 1970s, like 5% of the orchestras were made up, uh, about 5% of them were uh, women, the musicians. And so they started doing blind auditions where the, the judges for these orchestras would actually be behind a curtain. And so the women would take off their high heels so that you couldn't hear high heels walking across the stage and assume it was a woman musician. So the judges had no idea what the person looked like and all they could judge was the sound of the music. And this step alone made it 50% more likely that women would make it to the final stage of the auditions for the biggest orchestras in the United States. And I think this is crazy because this means that when we see someone it is changing how we hear the music that they are playing. Like literally the music sounds different to us if it's a guy or if it's a girl playing it, which blows my mind. But like if that is true, think about all the other ways like 
who we talk to in the hallway, who we grab a coffee with, like who we're going to recommend to work on a particular project. All these things are influenced by this. And it's, I think it's just so fascinating. That is fascinating for sure. Um, let's move now. We, this is time is flying when you're having fun here. And we're, this is a fascinating conversation. Um, let's talk a little bit now about perhaps why this matters in a little bit more detail. Um, you know, I think we've, we've talked a little bit about a business argument for perhaps, you know, we, we want to have diverse teams. We want people to be making good decisions. Um, maybe there's also an argument that's more ethical and moral in nature. Uh, you know, what Chris and I oftentimes refer to as the world you want to live in arguments. You know, what kind of world do you want to live in? Do you want your daughters to have the same opportunities that your sons do or, or not? Um, and uh, let, let's move in that direction. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of research, and this is done more by economists than business professor or than management professors like right. I am. But I've read some of the literature that, you know, countries that have more gender equity in the workplace um, have higher gross domestic products. So they're actually more competitive on a global scale um, when they have more women in the workforce. So that's kind of one <laughs> argument is if, you know, the United States wants to be more globally competitive, it needs to figure out how to do a better job of um, enhancing men and women's representation in organizations and, and even in leadership roles. And then, you know, from a business standpoint, I think we've touched on innovation, creativity, if you want better decision-making, getting people from different backgrounds in a room and having them work together effectively is really beneficial to companies' success. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's becoming better and better. But if you've grown up, I know when I lived in Alabama, I went to high school in Alabama, and it was very separated. If you'd show up at a house party, the guys would go for cigars and beers on the back deck. All the women would be in the kitchen doing, you know, the little sandwiches and stuff. But if if you don't, so if you have kids and stuff, if you don't give them practice with like cross gender and, and the first time they're really working closely with somebody of the opposite gender is once they get to college or something like that, that's going to be hard. Now, so there's this kind of hesitation. I still see this in the workplace, hesitation for these cross-gender partnerships. But what do we know from the literature about that? Is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, so, you know, the Me Too movement came around, what was that, 2016, uh, when that became a very widely discussed in the media, of this idea of, you know, gender harassment in the workplace. Um and so that, you know, obviously it was good to bring attention to that because I think, I mean, uh, I guess a lot of people didn't know that that was happening. Um, but at the same time, there are some penalties, I think, because women need mentors and sponsors who are men because there, there are simply just more men who are successful and who make it to the top. Um, and so I think it has um, in some ways been discouraging or, or made a lot of men who would be mentors or sponsors, sponsors towards women a little bit hesitant or cautious because they don't want to be seen as exhibiting favoritism or, or harassment or, or any of those things. Um, so I think, you know, what I tell my students about this is to just be professional. Um, you know, you can be a mentor to women um, or to people of the opposite gender, uh, whatever the situation might be. Um, 
and not worry about all that stuff as long as you always keep it professional and you're meeting in a professional place and you're doing professional things, um, which I know there's some great networking that happens in different settings. Like think about golf outings and other types of settings, or maybe you can be more informal with one another and really get to know one another. But if we're talking about workplace success and making sure everyone is getting mentors and sponsors and supported in their careers, I think keeping it professional is just a good golden rule to help everyone feel comfortable. Let me ask you about your individual experience as, you know, as a woman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, have you found those relationships, professional relationships, somewhat fraught? And and I like, let's take two examples, like, maybe some um, st- male students that you've mentored or working with uh, male colleagues, even coming up through college? What, what was that experience like for you? And what was maybe some of the successes and maybe some of that? Oh, man, what a bummer. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Because <laughs> I do think you want to be really thoughtful about all of this. Um, and so, you know, I've been very thankful to have some great mentors and sponsors in my own life and my own career. And I've never had to deal with any issues that a lot of women do face. I read that one in two women now experience sexual harassment in the workplace, um, which is crazy. Um, And so I think, but I have always been careful in if I'm out at, at a conference, I'm in a new city, and maybe a male colleague asked me to go for a drink. And if, especially if he's like more senior than me and we would be in like a, just the two of us having a drink in a dark bar, I have always avoided that situation and politely declined because I did not want anything inappropriate to happen. <laughs> I didn't want anything bad to happen to me. And so, you know, maybe that set me back because maybe having those conversations in a, in a bar would have been helpful to my career. Um, And maybe nothing bad would have happened, but I took extra steps to be really cautious to make sure that I wasn't putting myself in a situation where something bad could have happened. So, and I think that's another challenge that women have to face maybe that that men don't have to think about as much as when they're being mentored, um, not putting yourself in a predicament. Um, But from, from the flip side, you know, as a senior male, with the, the Me Too movement, I think men are having to be a, a little bit more thoughtful and think about those steps as well. But yeah, I've had some great mentors. I haven't had any issues, thankfully. Um, but I, I will say that I've probably thought about it really carefully and made decisions to avoid contexts where inappropriate things could happen. Uh, you know, I would say that, you know, obviously my experience is different, but um, I... I have always been very careful about these types of things because um, perhaps one thing that has resonated with me throughout all of my leadership training and my experiences in the military is that perception is reality, right? And um, my policy or my practice, I, I wouldn't be asking anyone of any gender who was far junior to me to come out for a solo drink. <laughs> I wouldn't be doing that. It, I, I think a a solo coffee during a coffee break at the conference or, yeah. you know, so a, a morning meeting, like that's a, just a different dynamic culturally. And I think yeah. is, is much more comfortable because I, I, 
I'm always hesitant to, tr- I don't want to put someone in a weird situation where they would, I wouldn't want to have to make someone like, like you it say no. Right. Because it, because it's just awkward. Um, but I think being thoughtful is, is the key here. And perhaps this is where we move to talk about some of these implications of all of this. If we can distill any, I think we can for individual people and for leaders and for organizations. Um, so maybe we can start with the individuals piece. And, you know, we had, um, some time ago, we had uh, a really great podcast with um, uh, David Smith and Brad Johnson uh, talking about their book, Good Guys, and their, their, own, their whole idea of uh, being a good ally for women in the workplace. And that was a, a fantastic conversation. What are your thoughts about that idea and maybe the idea and then also maybe how it's sometimes executed in organizations, this idea of being an ally to other people? Yeah, I think, you know, it's really important just to be a good colleague (laughs) to everyone if you can. Um, And recognizing that some people do have more challenging experiences than you might face in the workplace and just trying to be supportive towards them. I think it's so important, um, especially, you know, for for women to have male allies, you know, for, for employees of color to have white allies, you know, all the different ways that we can be allies. I think it's very helpful and important just to be supportive, to, um, you know, put your colleague's name in the hat if the boss is asking for who would be a great person to do such and such, thinking about those folks um, and supporting them, you know, if they haven't spoken up in a meeting, asking for their input, recognizing their contributions, um, not interrupting them during a meeting, you know, all these small things are kind of simple ways that we can be allies and be supportive of one another in the workplace, which I think is so important. Another individual thing, um, and I'll mention this because there's a a really cool study that just came out in Journal of Management about the grass ceiling. Have you Mm. guys heard about this with golf? (laughs) I can get what it means now. (laughs) Yeah. So golf, you know, is pretty male dominated. I think about 77% of golf players are men. And so this study looked at CEOs and whether they were golfers or not and how that affected the very exclusive type of activity golf is, right? Um, And so they actually found that CEOs who were golfers um, had fewer women in the top management team and a larger gender pay gap, um, which is so fascinating. And so, you know, I think there are certain contexts and certain activities that can strengthen our biases against others and golf might be one of them. Um, On the flip side, a lot of business happens on the golf course and um, something that individuals can do. If you're a woman, start playing golf. If you're an ally, invite your lady colleagues out um, and show them how to play golf. And there's a really great organization called Ladies Executive Golf Society which is legs, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> that their whole mission is to get women out on the golf course, to expose them to golf, to get them involved so that it can help overcome, um, be, you know, one of these business obstacles for a lot of women is because they, they often don't play golf and they're not familiar with it. So I think breaking down that um, is really important. That's just something individuals can do. Golf is obviously just one example of lots of types of activities, um, but I just think it's a really cool study and something to think about. That is fascinating. Um, and I think another potential implication is that if you're an organization that's trying to 
include people across a wide range of interests and skills and other types of thing and, and whatnot, whatever. Um, maybe, maybe choose something other than golf sometimes. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. have to be your only way of socializing with other people. Because like you said, it's an expensive sport. It takes time to get into it. Not all people like it, right? And uh, it certainly can be um, something that separates people. Um, but in the right circumstances can bring them together too. Yeah. Another individual thing, and we haven't really talked about this, is your mate selection. So as an individual, who you choose to partner with in life is really important for what you want to achieve. Um, so I think Sheryl Sandberg has a famous quote that the most important career decision a woman makes is who she decides to marry. Um, so I think that's really important. It's something, you know, I tell my students is to be really thoughtful as to who you're deciding to spend your life with and make sure that they have similar interests and goals um, as you so that you can achieve all the things that you want to achieve. And I think, you know, one could take that quote from Sandberg in a couple different ways. And I th I'm sure, you know, if you took that on its own, people could get really upset with that, right? <laughs> in terms of, oh, you mean I just have to be careful and marry, marry up or something? I think what she meant, perhaps, and I think what's, I, I think even more, um, I'm more c convinced that this is probably what you think, um, but you can tell me if I'm wrong, is, uh, it's about partnering with somebody who's going to be a true partner and somebody who is going to be supportive and has similar values and really can be a good teammate. And what I've noticed in my career is that, you know, there have been times when my stuff has kind of ebbed and flowed and stuff. My, my wife is a full-time professor as well, right? So she, her stuff has ebbed and flowed and we try to kind of make that work in a way where we can be supportive to each other at different times. It's not easy. It's, it's really difficult and it can be, um, you know, it's an ongoing negotiation, but I think it's important. And if you have those shared values, you can make it a lot easier. Yes, that is exactly how I was interpreting that. Yes! And I had All not right. third about, I had not thought about that alternative <laughs> um, <laughs> interpretation of that quote. <laughs> when you're in so many organizations like Ben and I are, sometimes you just, there's a lot of jack wagons out there. You always got to look at that. <laughs> the dark side of the moon, as it were. All right, right. Yeah. let's move to leaders. What are things that, you know, managers, directors, VPs within organizations and in our society can do to help with, you know, helping level the playing field? Or like I prefer that, make the kind of world you'd want your children and the future generation, no matter their gender, to inherit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's lots of things leaders can do. The first is to check your assumptions because, you know, relying on assumptions can save you time. You don't have to have lengthy conversations with people to make sure you're not assuming things that aren't the case. However, your assumptions can be very harmful um, and really make you ineffective, especially if they are not true. So, if you're, you know, making quick decisions, quick judgments, assuming certain things about your employees, check yourself and go and have a five minute conversation to find out what that person needs, what they want, what you can do to support them, because it might be very different than what you are assuming they want uh, from you as a leader. So having those conversations, understanding individual needs, um, your men might really want to take three months 
leave when they have a baby. And if you can make that happen, they're going to be very happy and committed to your organization when they come back. Um, So that's just kind of one example. But having those conversations and doing what you can to support your individual employees. Um, There's some really cool research by Jamie Gore and colleagues in Journal of Vocational Behavior about the maybe baby assumption, um, where childless women experience a lot more incivility in the workplace compared to childless men. And it's because managers are often assuming that they're going to have a baby, particularly women who are of childbearing years experience this. Um, And this is an assumption, right? We don't know that that's going to happen. And even if they do have a baby, They might still be super committed. As I saw in my study, their career motivation might be going up during that time. Um, So just, you know, don't assume that, you know, people are going to have certain changes in attitudes or changes in workplace behaviors. Um, Really just have those conversations, see how you can support them um, and be be a supportive supervisor because that's really important. Almost all the studies that look at discrimination or incivility or bad things that happen to you in the workplace, if there's a highly supportive supervisor, that helps buffer almost all the bad things. (laughs) So be a good supervisor and that's going to help. I mean, that's super good news in a lot of ways that, oh, it's super good news, but it's also hard news because make your, make all of your uh, supervisors supportive. That it's, uh, that is probably a part of the solution, but it's also not an easy thing to make happen. Uh, The good news is that you know, actually, you know, if your supervisors are being supportive, that's not necessarily something that costs the organization directly, unless you're having to perhaps train them and coach them extensively on being supportive, which maybe ties into maybe that maybe that would be a signal that you need to do a better job of selecting your supervisors in the, in the first place. Um, but I think that is a, a positive, um, positive thing. And it kind of ties into what you talked about earlier in terms of, uh, you know, career encouragement as well. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So be careful with your assumptions. Be supportive as a supervisor. Um, don't make that assumption, the, the maybe baby uh, assumption or, you know, she's a mom, so X might happen. Um, let's talk now maybe at a higher level about organizations. What are some things maybe at the policy level that an organization uh, could implement that executives could be thinking about to create the structures and perhaps perhaps influence the culture in a way that helps everybody thrive. Yeah, well, so to Chris's point earlier, you know, a lot of people aren't aware of the state of things and that these biases are kind of coloring everything and how we see the world. And so kind of awareness of what's going on and and how some people might face certain challenges that others might not face. It's kind of an important first step. Um, And then tracking data. So actually looking at like who is in your applicant pool for particular jobs and then who's actually making it to the interview round and then who's actually being selected and seeing if there are some inequities there, particularly if these people have similar backgrounds, similar performance, et cetera. Um, So kind of tracking that. um, Mark Benioff with Salesforce is a really great example of a company that has tracked metrics around, um, you know, gender gaps in pay and promotion rates. 
And they're really intentional in making sure that their managers are checking themselves with assumptions, looking at, um, you know, that men aren't being promoted based on potential and women are being promoted based on performance, which I think is something Ben mentioned earlier. Um, But that everyone's being promoted on the same objective criteria and certain criteria aren't being changed for certain people, right? Um, So that's important. Insisting on a diverse hiring uh, committee. So this is a lot of research shows that if you have a diverse hiring committee, then you're more likely to hire um, people from those underrepresented groups. So Airbnb is a good example of this. They increased the percentage of women on their data science team from 15% to 30% by taking names off of resumes. So similar to the orchestra, blind review of resumes. Um, and then ensuring that women were half or more of the inter- interview panel. Um, and they also had these candidates do presentations. So they made sure that the judges of those presentations, that it was about 50% men, 50% women. And those things made it much more likely that women actually made it into those types of jobs. Um, so that's something else that organizations can do. Uh, having good parental benefits. We've talked a lot about parents in the workplace, and I think it's really, really important to not just offer good maternity benefits, but that you offer good parental benefits to both men and women. We really need men to take advantage of their parental leave in order to have downstream consequences around gender equity in the workplace. Uh, Mentorship groups, sponsorship opportunities, um, employee resource groups, And um, something else that we haven't talked about that organizations are starting to do now is this on-ramp program um, where, you know, parents might take some time off, whether that's a few months or maybe a few years to focus on their families, especially when their kids are younger. But then when they're ready to jump back into the workforce full time, a lot of companies are offering these on-ramp programs where they might give you some upskilling, make sure that you're you know, staying current on the knowledge and skills that you need for your field, you might start out part-time, so a couple days a week, and then that slowly adjusts back to full-time if that's what the employee's interested in. So I think these are really helpful, um, especially for working moms who might have taken some time off um, and, are, and are ready to get back into the workplace. Outstanding. So Sam, is there anywhere on the web that you would want people to come find out more about you or anything uh, about your research, what you're up to? Sure. Yeah. My LinkedIn page, um, I keep pretty fresh and I post some of my research findings there. I also have a FSU website um, that has kind of summary of some of my projects and things like that. Wonderful. And we'll make sure we put links to those in the show notes. Uh, Sam, this has been wonderful talking with you. Is there anything else, any other parting thoughts that you want to share with our listeners about this topic? I think bottom line is be a good colleague. (laughs) If we're all good colleagues to one another, um, I know that's a huge oversimplification, but just being a good colleague can go a long way. Wonderful. Today, we've talked with Sam Posse and Underdahl on women, work, and why it matters. We've talked about the playing field of the workplace, why it matters, and how gender might fit into it, and some implications for people, leaders, and organizations. Sam, thanks for being a part of the Indigo Podcast. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com. 
where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.